There is a television show some of you may have seen. It airs on NBC. The title of this show is, Who Do You Think You Are? It's a genealogy show. In each episode, there's a celebrity who's invited to trace their family tree through genealogical records. And there are always these really interesting and surprising details about the celebrity's family that come to light through this research. Now, the guiding premise of this show is that learning about a person's relatives, even if the person has never met these people, can teach the person something about themselves. And of course, that's reflected in, in the very title of the show, Who Do You Think You Are? The answer to that question is at least to some extent, who you are is whom you are related to. If you can figure out what they were like, it might help you to understand yourself. Now that may not seem very controversial, but I bet if you asked most people, who do you think you are, they would not talk about other people. They would talk only about themselves as individuals. They would describe their habits, their preferences, as if those things were completely autonomous. They are who they are. It has nothing to do with anybody else. And that's because most people don't really understand how much our identities are shaped by our relationships. I mean, let me ask you a question. Has anyone ever caught themselves reacting to a situation and then said, my God, I sound just like my father? Or my God, the words that just came out of my mouth, I mean, those are literally the words of my mother. How could I have just said that to my children? Why does that happen? Because your parents shaped your identity. You learned how to be you through your relationships with them. And of course, this can be a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, if people loved you, then you learned that you are lovable. If they didn't love you, then you have probably had problems knowing that, and you might even have identity issues. It may have been a struggle for you to figure out who you are. The point that I'm making is that who you are cannot be separated from the question of whom you know. And that is why a lot of psychologists use genograms in their work. So when a new client comes to them, the first thing that they have them do is to fill out a family tree. They want to know who were your parents, what kind of problems did they have, who was your extended family, what kind of problems did they have. Why is that information useful? Because psychologists know that we don't create identities all by ourselves. And again, that might sound obvious, but I think it's very countercultural to say that identity is relational because we live in a very individualistic culture. And there's this idea that when you become an adult, you can just sort of choose to be whatever you want to be. And that sounds nice, and I understand the motivation. The problem is that that's not the way human psychology works. There's a saying in the South that, that when you see a turtle on a fence post, there's one thing you can say about that turtle. He didn't get there by himself. I mean, maybe he thinks he did. Maybe he can't remember anyone putting him on that fence post, but we know that turtles can't climb. And so that turtle owes his position in life to somebody else. And I think that's the way it is for all of us. We feel autonomous. We feel like individuals. Our culture tells us that we can be whatever we want to be. But what is this self that you think that you created all by yourself? 
What is that self? Wasn't it deeply shaped by other people? Weren't the earliest years of your life, the most formative years in which your, you know, your very psychology was developing, weren't those years in which you were utterly dependent on other people? How could they not have shaped you? Now, I think this is a really important understanding because it suggests to us how change might be possible. So if you do struggle with your identity, if you struggle to know who you are and what your place is in this life, there's one thing that you have to understand. The only way to discover those things is through relationships. And that's especially true if you've had bad relationships in the past. The only way to heal the damage of a bad relationship is by having a good relationship. You can't have no relationships because you can't find your identity all alone. You can't wake up one day and say, from now on, I'm going to think positively about myself. I mean, that sounds really nice. The problem is that you are a relational being. Your entire psychology is set up to find meaning through relationships. And so let's say you have a poor self-image and you're trying to love yourself more. The first step in that process is forming relationships with other people who see you the way you want to be seen. Because when other people value you, you begin to be open to the idea, you know, maybe I do have value. Maybe these people really do see something in me that I have not been able to see in myself. When other people love you, you begin to be open to this idea that maybe you are lovable. Can you see how this flies in the face of the modern self-help movement? The modern self-help movement by its very name suggests that you can help yourself by yourself. But psychologists know better. In fact, many people, if you've been, to, been involved in psychotherapy, you may have heard the expression, it's the relationship that heals. Has anybody ever heard this, this phrase? The, inter the interesting thing about psychotherapy is that there are a hundred different modalities and they all work. Cognitive behavioral therapy can make people better. Psychoanalysis can make people better. Family systems therapy can make people better and yet they're radically different approaches. Why do all these different approaches work? Because it's the relationship that heals. It's forming a connection with a therapist who values you and through their valuing you, you learn that you are valuable. But there's a huge caveat here. And I'm wondering if some of you are already thinking of that. Here's the caveat. If our identity is formed through relationships, what do we do about the fact that people are imperfect? That even the best people will inevitably hurt you sometimes. Even the most loyal people will sometimes betray you and lie to you and lash out at you. Even the healthiest, most mature people are going to have bad days and they're going to disappoint you. Well, that raises a very interesting question, doesn't it? I mean, if your identity is based in the love of these imperfect people, how is that going to be a stable identity that can bring you through the ebbs and flows of life? And you see, this is why God can do what no human being is capable of, because God alone can love unconditionally. That's the mystery of the cross. God went to the cross, and he got nothing out of it. It was a pure act of self-sacrificial 
love. And so the only relationship that can lead to a stable identity is your relationship with God. That's how you find out who you are. Who do you think you are, Charlie? Who do you think you are, Bill? Who do you think you are, Simon? I mean, if you have a relationship with God, then the answer to that question is obvious. I am God's child. I am God's beloved creation. That is my identity. And because he will never leave me and he will never disappoint me, that identity is rock solid. Now, everything else is secondary. Obviously, there's going to be all kinds of aspects to your identity. Maybe you're a woodworker. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you're a nurse. That can absolutely be part of your individual identity. But the center of it is that God loves you. And it's that love who shows you who you really are. Hold that thought as we turn to our reading. We're in a sermon series entitled Into the Mess. We're talking about the messiness of life. Each week we're looking at a character from the Gospels whose life is very messy. And I'm really excited about today because the character who has a messy life today is none other than Jesus himself. Jesus' life has become messy because he's driven into the wilderness to survive without food or water for 40 days. And if that weren't enough, out there in the wilderness, Satan appears. And he proceeds to put Jesus through a series of torturous psychological tests. So I would say that that qualifies as a pretty messy situation. The story is going to come from the Gospel of Matthew uh, 3.13 until 4.11. Let's listen to what God's Spirit is saying to us. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and yet you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts on this, your holy word, be acceptable in your sight and life-giving 
both to us and through us as your people. Amen. So we just read two pretty interesting stories. The first is the story of Jesus' baptism, and the second is the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And what I would suggest to you is that both of these stories have a central guiding question. It's a question of identity. The question is, who does Jesus think he is? And we're going to answer that question today. But in order to do that, we have to talk about Jesus's relationships. Remember, relationships and identity go hand in hand. We have to talk about Jesus's relationship, especially with his father. Of course, you might say, well, Jesus had two fathers. If he went in for therapy, his genogram would be a little complicated. Fair enough. But if we begin his genogram on the day that he is baptized, then we can focus on his heavenly father, because on that day it was revealed that although he had another father, Joseph, who certainly affected him, his ultimate identity was that of being God's son. When Jesus arises out of the Jordan River after being baptized, he hears God's voice saying, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And so we know that Jesus has literally the best possible identity formation. He has a father who loves him, a father who is proud of him, a father who is pleased with him. And I want to dwell on that just for a moment because these words are so powerful. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Is there anything else a child needs to hear from their father? God is claiming Jesus as his own. He's expressing his love for him. He's accepting him fully, exactly as he is, by saying he is pleased with him. That is unconditional love. That is the best possible basis for identity. If you had that identity, then you would be able to survive any trial. You would be able to face temptation. You would be able to face suffering because you could assert who you really are, God's child. And that's exactly what we see in the next story because this spirit, the same spirit that just ascended on Jesus like a dove, drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And what we see in all of these temptations is that all of them center on this question of Jesus' identity. Who do you think you are? The first temptation is about physical survival. Jesus has been without food for 40 days. He is very likely at the, at the point of death. Here's what the devil says. If you are God's son, then my goodness, I mean, you have unlimited power. Turn these stones into bread. Feed yourself. Use your power to save yourself. But this is what Jesus says. No. For it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy. Okay, says the devil. He takes Jesus on top of the temple in, in Jerusalem. And he says, if you are the son of God, then just throw yourself off this high ledge. I mean, after all, scripture says God's angels will protect you. The devil's pretty smart. You know, he heard Jesus quoting scripture. He's using scripture to try to tempt Jesus. Psalm 91 says, indeed, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. If you're the son of God, then surely you could just jump off this temple and God would save you. But Jesus says no, because it's written, do not put the Lord your God to the test, also from Deuteronomy. 
Now, <clears throat> excuse me, now comes the hat trick, the third and final test. The devil takes Jesus to a high mountain and he shows them all the kingdoms of the world, all the wealth, all the power. And he tells this famished, weary man, you can have all of this. Just bow down and worship me. And for the third time, Jesus says no. And he quotes Deuteronomy. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So what's going on here? Three times Satan tries to get Jesus to just prove that he really is the son of God. If you're so special, show me, use your power, save yourself. Why sit here and suffer? You don't have to suffer. You have unlimited power. You can save yourself. Three times Jesus refuses. What's happening is that this is a case of mistaken identity. The devil thinks that being God's son means one thing, but for Jesus it means something else. You see, for the devil, being God's son means being autonomous. It means creating your own identity. It means doing whatever you want. It's stealing the keys to your dad's Ferrari, and it's taking it out on the town despite the fact that he told you not to. It's saying, I am my own person. I have no relationship to my father. But Jesus understands that if you are the son of God, it implies that you have a relationship with God. You could not be God's son without God being your father. All the blessings of your life come from this relationship. Who you are to the very core is based on this love, and therefore if you reject your father, you are rejecting yourself. It's interesting, isn't it? Now to give the devil his due, I'm not, surprised, I'm not surprised that he had a hard time accepting what it meant to be God's son because, in fact, there were many others in the ancient world who called themselves God's son and acted exactly the way the devil expected them to. So, for example, in the, in the Roman world, the title son of God was given to all of the Caesars. And if you picked up a Roman coin in the first century, you would see a picture of, of Caesar's face, and underneath that face, you would read the Latin phrase, divi filius, which means son of God. This was part of Roman propaganda to tell the whole world that this emperor who controlled your life actually had divine authority to do so. And of course, those sons of God did exactly what the devil thought they should do. They took power for themselves, and they ruled with, with ruthless mercilessness. And if they were not unique in the ancient world, all of the rulers across the ancient world claimed some kind of connection to God, and that gave them authority to do what they wanted to do. But there's one thing that you never find when you look across ancient history. You never find a person who is given the title of God's son who then gives up all of his power, who will not even resort to making bread from stones in order to save his own life, now, what does that tell us? It means this is the only Savior who is capable of unconditional love. This is the only Savior whom you should trust with your life because this is the only God who can love you with sacrificial love. And that is why the devil always tries to make people question that love. If you look at the devil through scripture, his technique is always the same. He's always trying to convince people that their identity can be found apart from a loving relationship with God. Mary Jo read the story from Genesis a little while ago. 
the story of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. So what is the serpent's agenda in that story? He's trying to convince Adam and Eve that God cannot be trusted. God has just created these two human beings from the dust of the earth. He's imbued them with life. I mean, I would think that we could fairly say their identity was involved with God. They literally would not exist if not for God. Their genograms were pretty simple. God, Adam, Eve. That's their genogram. But then comes the serpent sowing seeds of autonomy. Well, you know God told you that you'd die if you ate the fruit. He was not being honest with you. You really can't trust God. The truth is that God is jealous. He doesn't want you to be like him, which is what would happen if you ate the fruit. God is holding you down. You need to find your identity apart from God. Don't you want to be free to do whatever you want? Eat the fruit. And they do. And their eyes are opened. And friends, it's, it's been downhill from there. Because Adam and Eve suddenly have an identity that is autonomous. And they think to themselves, well, maybe we can just go it alone, forgetting, of course, that we are relational beings and God loves them and that a relationship with God answers the deepest longing of their hearts. And for the rest of humanity, we've been trying to get back to that garden, haven't we? Now, I think Adam and Eve are deeply sympathetic characters because really they're just like us. The temptation is everywhere to find an identity apart from God. I think if somebody asked most of us, who do you think you are, would our first thought be, I am God's child? If that's not your first thought, then it's really a case of mistaken identity. You're not who you think you are. Sometimes relationships seem confining. Maybe it sounds more fun to take the keys to the dad's car and go off on a joyride, which is what the devil wants us to do. He wants us to put power in ourselves. You need to be liberated from God, he says. And, and let me be honest, that may be okay for a while. It may feel liberating for a while, but what happens when the car crashes? Who is there to help you? What happens when the road grows dark? What happens when you have to come face to face with profound limitations? When you struggle with doubt and despair? Whom do you call? For help? What happens when at the end of your life you face your own mortality? If your identity is totally anonymous, then obviously there's no one to hear your prayers. You're on your own. But if God is real, not only does he hear you, but he wants to be in a relationship with you. You can't remove yourself from the genogram. That is who you are. You are God's child. And the Bible says that paradoxically that relationship is the only way to true freedom. That freedom is not being autonomous. What freedom really is, is love. Being in a relationship that in some ways is limiting, but that is a relationship of love, is actually the path to real freedom. Let us end in prayer. Holy and gracious God, we pray that you would help us find our identity in you and in what your son has done for us. Where we are proud, he is humble. Where we are rebellious, he is faithful. Where we choose power, he chooses weakness. 
Where we choose autonomy, he chooses love. Help us, we pray, to live into this love, knowing that it is there alone that we can truly find out who we are. Help us to use this time of Lent to meditate on the fact that our very being is centered in you and in the life of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.